0: Welcome to the Redeemer Coast Podcast. Our prayer is that this message will inspire hope, build your faith and encourage you for God's purposes for your life. ABCs of Grace, and what we're doing over these uh, weeks and what's been months leading um, into into our launch is to go through a lot of our um, distinctives, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, correct? Galatians, Ephesians. And uh, so we, we did the ABCs of Faith recently. And um, we're doing the ABCs of Grace. Last week we talked about what Grace so we talked about we talked about why or how the church keeps getting it wrong, and not that we're picking on the church, but because it's human nature to revert back to a works-based um, belief and value system. And so we looked at uh, uh, Paul, how Paul rebukes Peter um, for wanting to eat with um, with the Jews instead of the Gentiles, and then we we talked about really how this this is this influence of works on our life is so ingrained in our fallen nature that we will by default revert to it. Okay, and so it's no it's no new thing, and of course. As the church has grown through the centuries and the millennia, there has always been a cycle where they've re- discovered grace again, discovered faith-based salvation, and, so, and then revival sweeps through the church. And we've entered into that really the last 10 years or so. It's, it's discovered, we've discovered um, more about the grace of God and a lot of the great moves of God happening around the world at the moment are grace-faith, uh, grace-faith based. And so then we defined grace, just the Vines Expository Dictionary definition, uh, nothing fancy. That is the dictionary that Jesus and Paul carried around when they were preaching, all right? Which is, uh, faith is God's favor, his unmerited favor. God is his attitude towards you. Uh, faith, grace is God's attitude towards you of attraction, all right? In that he actually likes you. Okay? And for no other reason than he finds you attractive. And then I reminded you of that wonderful movie, Miss Congeniality, you know, where she works, out <laughs> she works out that the other FBI, FBI uh, agent uh, likes her and uh, it finally clicks with her and she goes, I think you like me and you want to kiss me. I think it was the movie said I got corrected. Yeah, okay. Alright, so that is grace. Now it's manifest in other ways through the church, but that is grace and we need to remember that. When the Bible talks about grace, that is it. Okay, It is manifest through gifts and other things, but that is the bottom line. Even so much so that in, at the times in the, in the Greek, they had, the, the Greeks had goddesses of grace, the, the charises they were called, which is the Greek word for grace. And they, you know, you had other gods that could do Neptune with his fork and all those other guys and the graces could do nothing. They could do nothing except just dance around and look pretty, you know. And that was their gift, looking beautiful. And so the church took that word to say, God loves you just because he thinks you're beautiful. All right. So today we're going to talk about how grace is the value of God The value or the way that he esteems us is his grace. The value he puts on us is the grace that he has towards us. All right? So if you want to know how much God values us, it's how much his grace is demonstrated towards us. That is the value God puts on us. So we're going to read Ephesians uh, 2, 1 to 10, which is a wonderful passage but I want you just to look. We're going to look at just particular, about two types of value which, which God demonstrates here towards us. Uh, there's so much in this. But let's read Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, two. All formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as everyone else was. But God. And notice it says but. It doesn't say and. We'll talk about that later. It says but God, which means this is not tacking onto this. This is in total opposition to this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show he might demonstrate, he might display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that we may not boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, in which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Praise God. Now there's two senses here in which God represents our value. One is is what they call utility all right so if you're valuing a product or something it's like you ask well what can it do you know and that's the typical worldly fleshly way but there's a lot of validity to it what good are you okay and and he after salvation, after redemption, after the work of grace on our life, in verse ten it says, "For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand." So it's not like we can walk; we're walking around useless. Now notice it says, "We created for good." We are His workmanship, created for good works, not by good works. All right, that's like one word: created for good works, not by good works. So our utility, our usefulness in the kingdom of God. And by the way, it was such a joy to walk in here today car parks almost full we walk in and we're late for the prayer meeting but it started it was like glory you know and 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 we are created for good works but our value don't doesn't come from those good works for them not by them but that's the way the world typically looks at value okay and unfortunately that's the way uh we've been raised very often now i um like I was saying before, I was raised in the Salvation Army. In the Salvation Army, they have what's called junior soldiers. Anyone else here raised in the Salvation Army? That's good, so I can tell lots of stories. Uh, and uh, they have junior soldiers. Junior soldiers, when you get to seven years of age, they, uh, that's about the time that you need to uh, give your life to the Lord. And so from seven to 18, you're a junior soldier, and then you become a senior soldier. That's where you get your beautiful uniform. Okay. So when we were seven years of age... Uh, all the boys in the Sunday school were asked to go forward. And, uh, and I, they said, this in the end of the service, go forward. And I had no idea. The young persons leader said that to me. And I had no idea why. And I said to the, my friends, I said, why are we going forward? They said, I oh, don't worry about it. Just go forward. That's all right. So at the end of the service, they said, anyone would like to come forward, come forward. And, and what I didn't realize, it was giving your life to the Lord. So I went forward and I knelt down at the, they call it the mercy seat, which is a padded seat and there's a, a rail there. I knelt down and I just started to weep. And, um, and all the other guys, I can remember them looking at me, I just started to cry, you know. And the young persons leader came down, I was the only one, the young persons leader came down, put his arm around me, and I just said, I've been such a bad boy. You know, i sure he thought I'd killed someone, you know. Um... But then he explained to me this, and um, he said, "Listen, a lot of people think that they've sinned uh, so much that God can't forgive them." And he said, "But the cross goes way past that right out there." And and he drew it on the altar rail there. He drew a line showing where he thought I had sinned. Now I thought he'd been a bit harsh on me. I would have probably, you know, I actually you know, moved it back a bit. But nevertheless. And then he said, and the way he drew it out, it was as though the cross and the blood of Jesus was making up that gap. That stuck with me. And, you know, we we, we see, we see um, these tracks of salvation, and they're good, they serve their purpose, but where there's sin on one side and God on the other, and there's sin in the middle and the cross... Covers that sin, and and that's good, it it serves its purpose. And then, uh, but I I think very often we feel like getting to heaven is like we climb up a ladder, and there's this huge gap because we do say you could never be good enough, all right? And so we think the blood of Jesus covers that gap from the top of the ladder to heaven, but it doesn't because we've totally missed the point. The point is we could never. And the very fact that we think along those lines is original sin. They wanted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to stand in judgment about their value and their worth. And that was the original sin. And when, as soon as they did that, they became aware of their inadequacy. And it never separated them from God in the sense that God still wanted to hang with them. He came looking for them. And they, and they, and they confessed that they were inadequate. And God said, well, who told you? And the lie was that somehow by your own efforts you could achieve what God had already given you, which was inadequacy, which was adequacy, sorry. And even by defining your life that way, that was the original sin. Now, it was disobedience, and it was all those things, but in essence, you know, but God, God's value on us was never that. God's value on us was imputed to us given to us because of the esteem and the desire and the attraction that he has for us. You know, wives, if you've been married a few years and you ask your husband why he loves you and he says it's because you do my washing and you cook a good meal, well you're going to be worried about that, aren't you? It's alright. True? Right? Because it can't be that. And, and sometimes it's I just love you because I love you because I love you. So grace and our value, I, I, our value is imputed to us by God's value that he puts on us, the attraction, how he, wants to, how he wants to hang with us, the fact that he just finds us beautiful. Now, some of us, I understand, more than others. Don't worry, Duke. <laughs> now, you're one of the more-thans. <laughs> right. Okay? and um, So when I remember when we were... Um, uh, Many, many years ago, we went on a little weekend away into Melbourne, and I've always had a fascination with opals. I love opals, they're just so beautiful. And uh, I actually spent some weeks traveling with an opal, opal salesman in the US, an Australian guy, and it was just very interesting then working out what the value is. You know, the, the price of that opal changed depending on what shop they were working, walking into, and what the district was, and what the average income was. It's amazing, it changed. And I went to this store in Melbourne uh, separately. Lynn and I were down there on a the weekend, and I was just looking for all these opals. And I saw this opal. And I tell you, it was like, wasn't that big? It was like that big. And it had greens and reds and blues. I don't know why they called it a black opal, but nevertheless, <laughs> greens and reds. I just, it was just, and I was just fixated with it, like this, you know? And, the, and I looked at the price, it was like $5,000 for this little like that. And this is in the 90s. That's about $80,000 now. <laughs> $5,000. And I said to, I said to the, uh, the shop attendant, I said, why is that one worth $5,000? And he said to me, why did you ask? And I said, because look at it. <laughs> and he said, That's why it's worth (laughs) $5,000. In the marketplace, the value is actually always set by the buyer. Now, you may think your house is worth this, but if you can't get a buyer for it, it's not worth it. And for us, the value has been set by the buyer. It's been set by the buyer. All right? It doesn't matter, really, what we think it's worth, it doesn't matter what other people think we're worth. What was he prepared to pay for us? And remember, the God kind of grace we learned last week is not when we're all polished up looking good. Is that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and he valued us. Um, I went, when we went to the States, I took two books with me. I took the 26 translations of the Bible. That's so that if the lecture is wrong, I can prove it from one of the translations. And I took um, Tom Hawkins' The Art of Selling, uh, because I figured if I didn't get a teaching job, I might get a selling job. And I read this book, Tom Hopkins, The Art of Selling. And I just could not get over this idea that the value is set by the buyer. Couldn't get over it. Because, uh, you know, and I, I thought it was cheating. I thought somehow we're ripping them off, you know. And he went through lots of strategies. He was a Christian, I believe. Went through lots of strategies. But until I started to see it in action, I, I, first of all, I worked in a, in a carpet store. And another, there was a year two, a second year student from Raymond Bible College in the store. His name was Steve Smith. Steve, if you're listening, God bless you. And he had this real wicked sense of humour. Like he was naughty. <laughs> he was from Alabama. He was one of these naughty guys. And uh, he was good at selling. He would just get these sales. And I was struggling, you know. And he, and this this middle aged lady walked in to the um, into the shop, and he said, Grant, Grant, watch this. okay." And there was these waterfall, there was these waterfall displays, you know, the carpet comes over the waterfall like that, and they're all the different colours. And he walks up, hello ma'am, how you doing? And a few chatting, a bit of chat, a bit of socialising, and then he, he pulls over to this, to this waterfall display, and he leans over like this, and like, she was like 50, and he's like 30, and good looking guy, and he, um, we're all adults here, and he leans over like this, and he goes, ma'am, you need to feel this, and he goes... <laughs> he literally his nostrils flared and he breathed in and he raked his hand back up through there like that. You need to feel this cup. You need to feel this cup. <laughs> and boy, did he get an appointment to go and measure at her house, you see, because really, uh, you know, our emotional value was set by emotions, how, how loved we feel. And he was just saying, man, this it's gonna make you feel good, you know. And then I worked at a furniture store called Woodcraft. It was one of the biggest furniture stores in Tulsa, and I got trained by a very good salesmen. And and he basically said, he said, "You build the value in this product. You show them the value. They don't know what it is." And he encouraged us to right, to do this. And he would flip the chair over and we'd rip that, you know that. Cloth underneath it off, and he goes, "Look at this steel; it's hardened steel." You know, and and, and then he goes, "Try and bend it," and you get them there, and try and bend it. You know, and and I was learning that really your value in other is what other in other people's eyes is what they attribute to you. And so, to sell this furniture, I had to show that there was value in it, and so. Likewise, we have to learn that our true value is not in our utility, what we can do. Our true value is the value and the esteem that God places on us. And grace just doesn't add up. You can't just sit there and add up. I mean, if you could be saved by accountants, then Moses, salvation would have come through Moses because everything added up under the law. You know? But grace never added up. And the Jews, we know, they're great at adding things up, aren't they? Half the world's accountants are Jews, and they're good at it, you know. I can tell that because when it, you notice when, Peter, when Jesus appeared to Peter and uh, he said, uh, you know, like after no, fishing, after the resurrection, and he appears to them and he said, hey, what have you caught, knowing they haven't caught anything? And uh, then Jesus said, well, throw the net on the other side. And the net was so full, like this, and, the, and then they jump in the water, and they go and see Jesus, and then Jesus said to them, go and get some fish for us to eat. And Peter runs and gets it. And the next verse says, there was 153 fish. I mean, you think about that. He sat there and he counted these fish. He counted like, like Jesus said, go and get some fish. Go and get some fish. Well, hang on. I just need to count them. I, just, just, I know you're hungry. I know we've got a resurrection happening over here. But let me count. One, two, eight, three, four, five, 150. Not 150-ish. 153. But you know, grace does not add up. Don't think, I want, I get what I, you don't want what you deserve. Never say you deserve this. I don't want, I'm not going to pray, Lord, give me what I deserve. No. Wrong prayer. Try again. (laughs) You don't want you to deserve, you know? And this threw them, it's through the Jews, it really threw them. Imagine Jesus sitting looking at these, at these, um, People putting their offering in. This lady comes in with her mites, you know, like the like tenth of cent or whatever, and Jesus said that was more than what the and that would have thrown them. He didn't say, you know, really, when you look at it, like compared, like it's like, it's, you know, he actually said it was more because she gave as all she had. So the value that he put on that giving was not an amount. It was a spiritual value. And to be truthful, to be honest, or to be frank, I'm always truthful and honest, and sometimes I'm not frank. i normally just Grant, all right? <laughs> is that spiritually, really, God can do more with that. He can do more with that. Because giving, in essence, is a spiritual thing. That's why it doesn't matter with the five loaves and fishes it doesn't matter that it was five loaves and fishes it doesn't matter so much what you give that that you give what you what you can what you have and that just all these parables were just throwing them you know luke luke chapter 15 he goes through three parables which just throw them the jews with regards to value right the first one is the lost sheep who has a hundred sheep and does not leave them. And what he's trying to do is trying to explain, for God, this is the value that you have. It's, it's not this by this. I mean, if, sense, like that shepherd would probably get fired because you've left 99 sheep for the wolves because you value this one. You value this one. And that's saying, so it is with God. And our value and our esteem our net worth, our worth in God is, is his desire. We are the one sheep. And I can imagine them throwing it with a, with a lady that had ten, ten coins and she loses one, you know. And she stops everything. Each one of those coins was about a day's work. And for me it sounds like she spent all night looking for that, okay. And then she finds it and she rejoices. She leaves the other nine, she finds that tenth, and then she calls a party. And I could just see the accountants go, well, hang on, you got cordial? You got chips? Like, you've just blown half that coin, <laughs> haven't you, by throwing this party because you found it? But, you know, grace is a gift. And it, it doesn't add up, you can't add it up. And then he told the story about the laborers. Now, get this one who feels like peeved? 'Cause you identify with the labourers that come in at the last minute. You know, like so so a man goes in the market and he hires the labourers and he agrees on a price. All right. And they work and he goes back halfway and he gets some more labourers. And at the end of the day, you know the ones that are left in the market, they're just lazy. They're the ones that slept in, thought, Oh, we'll go down to McDonald's, we'll have, you know, brunch whatever and they get there about three o'clock in the afternoon with an hour to go. And God goes and gets them. The the, the uh, the landowner, and he goes and gets them. And he says, come with me. And by the time they get there, they pick up a few sticks and they get the same pay. And that's grace. It doesn't add up. And, you know, everyone else in the world, almost everyone else, they'll look you up and down and they'll give you value. They assess you by the way you look, by how you, what income you've got, all that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, with, with guys, it's how big and strong you are. With girls, it's how popular they are. You know, It's just different ways of measuring. It. But God doesn't measure on, on account. It's not a ledger. It's not a ledger. This be, the second thing about grace is that grace is the demonstration of the value that God has for us. And the most beautiful parable about it is one that's in three of the gospels and it's the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, of course, asks his father for his inheritance, which we know now was like the biggest insult, one of the biggest insults you could give to a father, because his mother's saying, Well, you're as good as dead. You know? It's like, you know, I wish you were dead so I could have the inheritance. You know. I mean, my dad just stayed with me for three weeks. I didn't ask for the inheritance, I mean I thought about it a few times but I didn't actually go and ask it you know, because it was like how would it be, can I have my inheritance now yeah I know some of us are not worth asking that's right <laughs> but he asked him for his inheritance and then he goes and squanders it in, in a far off place on prostitutes and, and, and life and, and, then, and, and just thinking that he could get life you know, from, from apart from his relationship with his father and of course, he becomes destitute and he ends up uh, famine in the line and he ends up uh, wishing that he could eat the pods that were being fed to the pigs. And then he comes to his senses. You know, we, we, you know even repentance, we've tried to make repentance this, this worksy thing. You've got to show the fruit of repentance. Like, show it that you mean it. And repentance just means you change in your mind. You've gone, oh, I've been a fool been a fool and so he he said I've been a fool even even the slaves eat better and so he turns around and goes back to the father the Bible says and and the father seeing him from a distance you know the beautiful thing about the grace of God is as soon as we just turn towards him God's always there when we turn as soon as we turn towards him and he comes running to he came running how embarrassing for a Middle Eastern father to go running to his son, went running to his son. And of course the older brother didn't get it. The older brother was just as lost as the younger brother. He wasn't enjoying the fruit of the relationship with his father. But we discover there the value of that son was never in what he did. Never in his attitude or his works or his failings. His value was in the un- unending, overcoming overwhelming, never-ending love that the Father had for him. The second thing about grace is grace is the measure of the value that God puts on us. I'm just going to finish with a parable, a, a reworking of that parable, in which is in Philip Yancey's book, What's so Amazing About Grace. And I'll try and read it without, without crying. So, And this is a reworking of that prodigal son parable. He says, a young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just outside of Traverse City in Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned. They tend to overact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. And they ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door. Of a room after an argument, and you just imagine he's probably going to make up with her and tell her how much he loves her. And that night she acts on a plan that she's mentally rehearsed many times and she runs away. She visits Detroit, she's visited Detroit once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. And because newspapers in Traverse City report on all the lurid details of the gains and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that this is probably the last place, place her parents will look for her. They would look in California or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges for a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better. she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all this fun. And the good life goes for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him a boss, teaches her a few things that men like. She's underage, so men will pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants, and occasionally she thinks about the folks back home but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe that she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees a picture printed on the back of a milk cart milk carton saying, have you seen this child? But she now has blonde hair with all the makeup and body piercings, jewellery. Nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. But after a year, the first sallow signs of illness begin to appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. He says, these days we can't mess around, and he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much anymore, and all the money she has goes to support a habit. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside of big department stores. Though sleeping is the wrong word, a teenage girl on the streets in Detroit can never relax. Dark bands circle her eyes and her cough grows worse. And one night as she's trying to sleep and she lies awake listening for footsteps. All of a sudden, everything about her looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold, frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers. She's piled atop of her coat. And something jolts in her brain. And she remembers the images of May in Traverse City, when there was a million cherry blossoms all at once, and her golden retriever and her ran through the rows of blossomy trees, chasing a tennis ball. And she says, God, why did I leave? And the pain stabs her heart. My dog back home is eating better than I do. And she's sobbing. And she knows in a flash that more than anything, she just wants to go so she calls home three times, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mum, it's me. I was wondering about coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll, I'll be there about midnight tomorrow and if you're not there, well, I guess I'll, I'll keep going to Canada Why anyone would go to Canada. She must be desperate, really. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City and during that time she realises all the flaws of her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day until she could talk to them or even if they're home, they've probably written her off as dead a long time ago. and She should have given them time to overcome the shock. But her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech that she's preparing for her dad Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them and she hasn't apologised to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed warm by thousands of tyres and the asphalt steams. And She's forgotten how dark it is there and a deer darts across the road. The bus whirs. And Every so often she sees a billboard with a signed postage to the mildest to traverse city, and she thinks, oh God. And when the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hiss, the driver announces with a crackly, crackly voice, we've got 15 minutes, folks, that's all we've got, 15 minutes, and then we're going. And she thinks, oh, I've got 15 minutes to decide my life. She gets out, she checks herself in the mirror, She straightens her hair, wipes the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains and injection marks on the arm. and She tries to cover them up, hoping that no one will notice. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of her thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepared her for what she sees. There on the concrete walls and the plastic chairs of the bus terminal, Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great-aunts, uncles, cousins, grandmother, great-grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing goofy party hats <laughs> and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall, the terminal is a post that says, Welcome home. And out of the crowd breaks her dad. And she stares through her tears... And she starts to say, Dad, I'm sorry. And he says, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late for your party. Praise God. So the ABCs of faith is, of grace is, his grace towards us is the value that he puts on us, the esteem that he has for us, the love that he has for us. let's Let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your great love for us we thank you that while we were yet sinners Jesus came sought us out and died for us and we thank you that we can always have this confidence in coming to you that you value us you esteem us you desire for us to be in fellowship and to know you and Father, we ask, I ask that that would be edged deep on our hearts to know the grace of God. Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that you've been encouraged by the message. Please consider leaving a review and subscribing to receive new content. For more information about Redeemer Coast, visit www.redeemercoast.com. Or find us on social media where our handles are at Redeemer Coast. Until next time.